start thinking of yourself as a person of conscience at work and bring your values with you and bring the same level of commitment to values that you would have at home to the office. Now, how you talk about them, how you manage them, those are tactical concerns. But if you have the motivation, if you have the commitment, if your identity is invested in this, then the rest of it will start making sense. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. What gets you up in the morning? What drives your decisions? What do you stand for? No idea? Not even sure where to start? I use my values to guide my life and career. It's the basis of how I've built boundaries for myself and stuck to them. Are you ready to dig into what matters to you? Go to thecatchgroup.com to download your free values worksheet. That's thecatchgroup.com to download your free values worksheet to get to your core values and take action on what matters most. Welcome to this week's episode of the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. This week, we are talking to Richard Schell about his new book, The Conscience Code. G. Richard Schell is a global thought leader and senior faculty member at one of the world's leading business schools, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He serves as the chair of Wharton's legal studies and business ethics department, the largest department of its kind in the world. His forthcoming book, The Conscience Code, Lead with Your Values, Advance Your Career, addresses an increasingly urgent problem in today's workplace, standing up for core values such as honesty, fairness, personal dignity, and justice when the pressure is on to look the other way. Shell is a skilled communicator across many diverse audiences. His students have included everyone from Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and Fortune 500 CEOs to FBI hostage negotiators, Navy SEALs, and the United Nations peacekeepers. In addition, he has worked extensively with public school teachers, labor unions, nurses, and hospital administrators to help them become more effective professionals. Shell's previous award-winning books include Bargaining for Advantage, Negotiation Strategies for Reasonable People, The Art of Woo, Using Strategic Persuasion to Sell Your Ideas, and Springboard, Launching Your Personal Search for Success. Collectively, they have sold over 500,000 copies in 17 foreign language editions. He has written for and or been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Fast Company, Inc., Financial Times, U.S. News and World Report, USA Today, Time, HuffPost, Real Simple, Bottom Line Personal, and Men's Health. I cannot wait for you to hear our discussion. You get to hear me geek out with Richard on my favorite topic, living your values at work. 
we talked about being able to stand up for your values, especially when you don't feel like you have the power in the relationship to do so, not just in the big moments, quote unquote, like a whistleblower, but the importance of living your values every day in the small decisions and important conversations. Let's get started. Well, I am so excited to welcome to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast, Richard Schell with us today. We are so excited to discuss one of my favorite topics, which is values. And you have a new book that has just been released called The Conscious Code, Lead with Your Values, Advance Your Career. Welcome. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here. Well, what inspired you to write about this topic and why now? Well, it's a great question. The inspiration really came from a course that I teach at the Wharton School, where I'm a professor, and I helped to lead a a redesign of our MBA curriculum, and we created this required course called Responsibility. So I volunteered to teach it. I was uh, figured, you know, if you're going to design some sort of meal, you ought to try eating it yourself first. So, (laughs) But in the context of, of teaching that, I got exposed to just hundreds of stories from my MBA students who were coming to us ages 28 to 32. They'd already had one or two jobs out of college. They're obviously very talented people. They'd worked for some very prestigious firms, some of them, but it didn't really matter whether they'd work for the high-flying you know, investment bank or the startup or the consulting company in you know, Texas. It was just a lot of value conflict examples, some where the students had been successful in managing them and and many where they had come to regret how they handled them. And so that experience of listening to these millennials, you know, Gen Z, sort of expressing a craving really for tools and perspectives on how to manage these unwanted, uh, but pretty expectable, pretty predictable uh, conflicts over values, you know, brought me to the the, the thought that maybe a, a book on this subject would be helpful. And I remember specifically one student had had an adventure in the fashion industry. She she dreamed of being in the fashion industry. She got into it, and her boss, after about a year, her boss hit on her and um, actually groped her at a restaurant at a dinner, and. She managed it. She knew there was no chance this guy was going to get anywhere with this behavior. She got up, went to the restroom. She did all the things that, you know, you sort of put distance between yourself and what's going on. But what she couldn't quite figure out was what to do after that. Should she report him? What, what would happen to her career? What would happen to the, in the office? You know, and I kind of remember thinking, you know, that was, was all very well and good to identify these conflicts and to predict that they're going to happen. And even to have the right attitude about where you draw the line. But what there wasn't was any sort of roadmap for a tactical approach with options and uh, perspectives for someone who's been handed one of these. How do they think about what to do next? You know, to elevate, escalate, uh, how do they manage it? And so the, so the conscience code really was my attempt to both frame the problem Mm-hmm. That, these, that these disputes and conflicts are in the future for most young people, and then advance them t- down the road toward options and solutions to think through as they decide what to do about it. 
That's great. You mentioned a couple of examples, um, but based on your research, what are some of the values that are frequently sparking some of this workplace conflict? Sure. I mean, I actually came up with an acronym. You know, those are very helpful. And the five values that I sort of highlight in the book as being the sort of vortex of these kinds of conflicts, I use the acronym CRAFT, C-R-A-F-T, with the C standing for compassion, which I think is really the values of protecting people and uh, promoting safety and preventing harm and uh, welfare. So, and the example that I just gave you of a woman who's the victim of sexual assault, really, I mean, the guy was not just harassing her. That's a, um, that sort of gets to a number of these. The second one, they are, is respect. And so that's certainly one of the values that she felt would have been invaded there. But whether to act on it or not, which was her problem, actually in sort of impacts the compassion value because he's going to keep doing this. And if nobody calls him on it, they're future victims. And her ability to manage that more successfully, where she could actually have helped to prevent this happening in the future with this person, would have been acting on that compassion value for future victims. So CR, compassion, respect, a for accountability, holding people accountable. And holding people accountable, not just for ethical violations of a typical sort, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, but also accountability for doing things right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's often the case that managers will take a shortcut that affects the quality of what your work is. They may even take credit for your work. <laughs> and, uh, and then the client feedback is negative, but no one's holding this person accountable for the behavior that they've become habituated to. So holding people accountable to standards is the A. And then the F is fairness and justice, unequal pay for unequal work, uh, racism, sexism, the uh, hiring, uh, firing, all the wrongful dismissal, all the issues that sort of swirl around fairness and justice in the workplace. And then finally, truth, T for truth. Uh, And that's dishonesty, uh, lack of transparency, a lack of willingness to be truthful. Thank you so much. And I love that there's an acronym to remember them too. So when we think about millennials and Gen Z within organizations, you know, some of them might be just starting their career like Gen Z. Millennials are, some of them are in mid-career at this point, right? I think some of the oldest millennials are almost 40 now. Right. But some of them still might not be in a place of authority. Um, that might be early in career, mid-career, standing. It feels like a lot of this has to do with power, if I'm not wrong. I feel like- I think you're right. Yeah, standing up for yourself, but when you're not in a position of power, saying no to your boss, uh, the example that you gave earlier um, of the person in the fashion industry, like sometimes that just feels insurmountable. Yeah. 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 What are your thoughts on how do you live those values even when you're not in a position of power? Well, first of all, I would say that it's rare that anyone is in a sufficiently strong position of power to compel change Mm -hmm. in any kind of workplace setting. So there's a bit of an illusion that, oh, well, if I only have the power, then I'd be able to do something. So I think the, I think when that script starts playing in someone's mind, something bad happens. And the next thing you think is, well, I really don't have the authority to do anything about it. That strikes me as more of a rationalization than a reason, because 
very few people will ever have the power to command a change. And even if they did command it, it might not work. So my approach is to think very strategically and the, go through sort of a checklist of steps. And the, you know, the first one is to recognize that, that this has happened and to face it, to, to not try to deny it or let someone gaslight you uh, into thinking it didn't happen and all the different things that can sort of make these problems a little elusive. You confront the brutal truth and then understand what kind of pressure you're facing. Because it's a different thing to confront pressure from authority than it is to confront peer pressure. It's a different thing to confront a kind of uh, dynamic of pressure from incentives, that incentives meaning deadlines, aggressive goals. Uh, and the people that are pressuring you may be victims themselves of unreasonable expectations that have to do with the incentives that they've been handed. And if they don't perform X in Y time, then their jobs are on the line. And then they just push that down. You experience it as pressure from authority and these people lack ethics, but they're experiencing it as pressure from people even higher than they are or from the system itself. And they think of themselves as victims. So understanding the incentives that are actually leading to most of this, it's, it's pretty rare. There's, there are 3% of uh, business people or organizational participants who are truly psychopaths. That is, they are unempathetic, uncompassionate, self-interested, egoistic, narcissists who care only about themselves and are willing to throw everybody else under the bus. That happens. And 3% is a big number. If you have a million executives, that's a lot of people who are psychopaths. But in any individual case, usually what's happening is somebody who is otherwise a good person is behaving badly. So if you put that in your head as a starter kit, then you start thinking, okay, how can I figure out how to manage this problem against someone who is not necessarily evil, but are themselves feeling uh, pressures or themselves misunderstanding what's happening, or maybe even unaware that they violated or stepped over this line. That happens a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and then rally at least one other person to be on your side. And that, I think that's an essential step in any successful strategy to overcome a value conflict successfully is never think of doing it alone. And a lot of my students, their stories when they came to regret their lack of action, mm -hmm. invariably were, including this woman I mentioned earlier, invariably were people who kept it to themselves and didn't really think about how to consult with a mentor or to find a colleague who might share their point of view or talk to someone who is you know, of their age and seniority in the firm and say, this just happened to me, you know, have you heard anything like this going on? And, and you know, there's, a, there's a, an incredible psychological uh, phenomenon called, it's got a fancy name, pluralistic ignorance. Have you ever heard of pluralistic ignorance? It's, 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 it's one of those ones that they sound more complicated than the common sense that they <laughs> actually are. But pluralistic ignorance is if you have a group of six people and one of them tells a sexist joke, there are five others in the room. Pluralistic ignorance is that each of the other five thinks that all the other ones think it's funny, but actually all five of them think it's insulting. But because they all think that the others think 
that it's funny. No one speaks up. Mm-hmm. And so this sexist gets to, you know, continue to insult people while the majority, if not all the people around them think that they're being crude and inappropriate. But that's just because nobody asks. Does anyone else in the room think that this is inappropriate? Now, you don't have to do it in the room itself. You know, you take somebody outside and say, did, they, did, did you think that that joke was you know, inappropriate? And, and then once you break pluralistic ignorance, that is you, you break open the fact that there was actually a pretty strong consensus that it was stupid, inappropriate and insulting. Now you have a coalition of people and you have more confidence in the value as you felt it. And you have more consultants to ask, what should we do about it? And they have more relationships to bring. Well, I know somebody or, you know, I know somebody who knows somebody. So then the chance of taking effective action goes up radically, mm. exponentially. So power of two, you know, is a really important early step in taking action that even without formal power, you have the power of the standards of the firm, you have the power of the norms of a good workplace, where many of the people actually believe in those norms, but there's some strong, assertive, dominant people who are, who are acting inappropriately. But the norms are important. They can actually um, marginalize even a dominant personality if you have enough people in the room who believe the standards being violated. And uh, they can sort of nudge the person into awareness that even if they don't believe it was insulting, they can change their behavior so that people don't have to live in this toxic environment. So these are the kinds of tools I talk about in the book that are very strategic, simple, anyone can do them, but they don't work if you don't try them. So, you know, you need to have a little tactical sheet to think through. It feels like it's not if, but when some of this stuff is going to happen, and it feels to like, you know, many organizations kind of say that they're values based in their culture, but sometimes it feels like it's lip service, especially with now millennials and Gen Z, they, they are really wanting these value based organizations. And I'm even finding this with my coaching clients that like, you know, some organizations haven't, and we were just talking about this um, before we started recording, um, right. You know, some organizations have not risen to the level of expectations of their employees through the pandemic or the Me Too movement or, you know, just racial injustice. And what can you do to prepare in advance for some of these conflicts? Just yeah. to understand, like, you know, at some point, there will be a, a time where my values as an employee are going to be challenged. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think the very first thing, and it's something I emphasize in my class as well as in the book, is to think about yourself differently. Because if you're, if you're going to have the courage to, to meet the moment, you have to think of yourself differently before the moment happens. And my own phrase that I think is really useful for people to incorporate in terms of their personal identity is person of conscience. You're not a whistleblower, you're not a rabble rouser, you're not a radical, you're not a troublemaker, you're not anything. You're just a, someone who brings their conscience to work. And everybody has areas of their lives where their conscience and their values are the everyday guides to behavior. It might be in their family, it could be in their religious community, it could be in their secular community, uh, in their school districts or whatever. And you're not gonna, you're not gonna let something like a teacher in your school district prey on children 
without being both outraged and appropriately effective in taking action and thoughtful. Uh, and you'll spend some time on it, even if you don't have any power. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're not the superintendent of the school district. You're not the principal of the school. My view is start thinking of yourself as a person of conscience at work and bring your values with you and bring the same level of commitment to values that you would have at home to the office. Now, how you talk about them, how you manage them, those are tactical concerns. But if you have the motivation, if you have the commitment, if your identity is invested in this, then the rest of it will start making sense because you're gonna say, I am a person of conscience. These values are important enough for me to take action on. And even when an organization is only giving apparent lip service, to a value like transparency and everybody's meeting behind closed doors and meetings are never happening really, but don't tell anybody, but the value is still out there. And there is somebody in that organization that is committed to it. And there may be a lot more than you realize because organizations are complicated and they often exist in silos, little units. And one unit can have a toxic culture while the unit in the next office can have a thriving culture. So rather than generalize, oh dear, I'm in a toxic office, it's a toxic company and it's not walking the walk. Mm -hmm. Start thinking about where in this organization might this value have some traction. And that's where social networks help. That's where mentoring systems can be helpful. Social networks where you can sort of start inquiring. It's just me, but, but you know, it seems like the office bullies are kind of winning the war here. And I'd like to know where I can talk to someone about this and just, you know, brainstorm what are some ways that we can uh, cope with it. At the end of the, of the rainbow, most of these kinds of behaviors are legally risky mm -hmm. for firms to engage in. And so there actually is more leverage on the part of the employees to affect change if they can get to the right office who owns the risk and say, we have a risk here. And I'm just trying to help the firm protect itself. So how you frame things and making sure that you say, you know, find the, the people who own this the liability or the whatever it ends up being. I, I personally don't believe legal liability is a, a great way to frame a value. But if you're in a culture where that's the only currency, use it. You know, I, I don't think there's any reason not to use it. So, it, you know, it, it really is uh, not, don't overgeneralize your experience and be open-minded and consultative to try to find the people that will have a, some, you know, similar point of view, then lay out a tactical plan. And I, I love what you said about, you can see it in pockets. Cause if I think about all the organizations that I've worked at, where I felt that something was being compromised in some way, shape or form, whether it was something egregious or if it was something that was just like, oh, we're not living the values of the company that we said that we're gonna do, right? Right. I can see the leaders who are doing it and yeah. you can see that through their actions and you can see it in the pockets of the organizations that have better culture, that have you know that team that you really wanna be on, the leader that's like a talent magnet, yeah. And um, you can see that. And it feels like those are the places where it might be even safer to get counsel, to get feedback from, to find those places in the organization. And, and at the end of the day, maybe that's uh, the best move is going to be to do everything you can to move out of your situation and into that one. But that also takes 
tactics and strategy and relationships. Let me let me take a quick example of of a powerless person who utterly changed the mission of an organization. She had no authority whatsoever. So this is a student of mine, and she's Chinese. She's from China. So she was before she came to Wharton. She was in an agricultural agency in China, state organization that was making grants to rural communities to, for economic development and trying to get people up and working. And um, she became aware of the fact that the leader of this Chinese group was corrupt. He was making sure that all the grants were going to his home province where all his uncles and aunts and cousins and nephews lived and they were getting all the money and nobody else was. And so the mission was compromised. Now she was way down the, the tier and she was talk. she knew because of her information, she was a, you know, in the flow of the grant making. So she could see what's happening. And it's China for crying out loud. I mean, you know, we're talking about an authoritarian government with, you would think hierarchy would be overwhelming, but two things. One, the Chinese government at the time actually had an anti-corruption campaign going because even the Chinese government knows that corruption's bad and they want the money they're appropriating to go to help people so they can stay in power. And secondly, she knew some people in the public relations division of this group. So she and her friends in the public relations divisions, all of whom were 23 or 24 years old, cooked up a plan. And they knew that this head of this agency was going to have to give a press conference to Chinese media on the progress of this program. And in China, the press sort of are owned by the organizations. It's not an independent press. So all her friends in PR had really good relations with all these reporters. So they planted some questions to put to this leader in a public forum. And the questions were, uh, can you tell us where the grants have been go going to? And then what do you think of the leaders, our fearless leaders, anti-corruption campaign? And what are you doing to implement the fearless leaders corruption campaign? And this guy was completely caught off guard by these questions. And he sort of stumbled through and, but he knew that they knew that the press knew what was going on. And after that one press conference, which had nobody's fingerprints on it, everything changed. The grants started going all over the country. This guy was now fearful that he might lose his job, maybe even go to jail. And so this one woman uh, with a few friends, by thoughtfully putting this leader at some reputation risk in a public setting, changed the whole organization. So, you know, it, that's a dramatic example, but you can sometimes get change if you can stage the right kind of meeting with the right kind of people in the room where most of them own the, you know, really believe in the value that this outlier is violating. And once the outlier realizes that everybody knows, you don't have to accuse them of committing a crime or, you know, do anything other than show them, we know what's going on. And now you know that we know. And so it's a funny thing. People will always behave in their own best interests. They don't want to get caught. They don't want. They don't to want to get. They don't want to get caught. They don't want the risk. They don't want to lose their position. And so all of a sudden, they start bending back toward the values that you want them to. Doesn't mean they get to be better people, but you can change their behavior. I think that's that's a kind of um, feel empowered in that sort of way. You know, uh, I, I once. Uh, I know this is an obnoxious example, but I was once in a in a line trying to get in a restaurant. 
And the guy in front of me didn't have reservation, but he insisted on being seated. And the maitre d' said, well, we're all full. We, you know, you don't have a reservation. And uh, I, I happened to know who this guy was. And he was the owner of a restaurant that I go to that's local. And so this guy said, listen, I own a restaurant. I know there's always a way. <laughs> and sure enough, we got seated first. We had a reservation. But five minutes after we got seated, he got seated. <laughs> and it's true. There is always a way. Restaurants always have a few gaps in their reservations for things that happen that are surprising and whatever. And they actually build it into their model. Only if you know, only if you happen to know that, if you are the owner of a restaurant, do you know that? Inside organizations, there's always a way. It's just like there's always some money. You just have to know where to find it. Yeah, you have to know where to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's always, it's always some there. And when someone says, we just don't have the money for it, it isn't that they don't have the money. It's that they don't want to spend it. So, you know, you have to figure out, okay, how do we make this a priority? And that takes some political work so that they want to spend it. And then suddenly there's some resources that weren't there before. So I have a question on um, this idea that you just mentioned before. There is always a way, and um, but the people are only doing it basically because of their best interests. Is it just naive to think that they're going to live by this, that they'll have the conscience to do the right thing at one time? Like what? Like what's the motivation for somebody who really wants somebody to just do the right thing because it's the right thing, not because it's in their own best interests? Okay, I, that's, you know, that's a great question. And so far, we've been talking about the boss who doesn't want to do the right thing, and is just self interested. They're not psychopaths, but they're feeling the, the incentive, power, risk, you know, pressure, and they're just results oriented, and they're just they burn and pillage because we got to get it out the door. Right. I think and so for them, you have to use sort of pressure tactics, because that's what they respond to. It's more often the case, I think, that people lose sight of their values under these conditions and often are grateful to be reminded of them if you can bring it to them in an appropriate way. And then they thank you for it. Uh, I, I Another example from the book and also from one of my students, uh, I had a guy who had a project manager in a consulting project and the project manager was under intense deadline pressure and they we're gonna put some incorrect data in a report to a client because they didn't have time to fix it. And my student was very uncomfortable with that. They, the truth value was important and he thought service to clients was very important, accountability. So he went to the project manager and said, I'm really uncomfortable with this. I think we just have to you know, put in some midnight hours and get the right data. And the, the person said, don't worry about it. No one's gonna read the report anyway. You know, We're just gonna do this. So he then went to his mentor and said, I'm uncomfortable about this. And so he went over the project manager's head. The mentor agreed with him that the firm's values really were offended by this kind of shortcut. But the mentor had more contact. So the mentor went to uh, somebody who was an expert in this industry who had the right data. And they had a meeting, the three of them, the expert, the mentor, and my student. And they figured out how to correct the report. And then my mentor, the, the mentor person, went to the project manager and said, we're going to fix the report, and you're going to have to put in some midnight hours to make sure that it's report, but your employee here had the right idea, and you know this is the firm's way to do this. Now, right after that, the project manager was pretty angry at my student for going over his head, although the student went to him first. But 
when it came time for performance review, you know, a couple months later, the project manager actually gave him the highest possible performance review and thanked him for correcting this mistake and for reminding him about the values of the firm. Because he was not going to succeed at the firm if he did that more than once. And so he got some coaching internally. My student got a lot of credibility, both with the project manager for, for taking the higher road and also with his bosses. And so I think very often that's the problem. Someone loses their way, but they're not unwilling to be reminded if you do it in a way that makes sure that the values are implemented correctly and that you know everybody is proud of what the outcome is. And again, it, it, it's extra work. You know, because you're not just carrying the outcome with you, you're carrying the values, you're carrying the process for getting the outcome. So yes. it's not just, it's not just what comes out, it's the way you got there. Yes, that, the way you and, got there. It's just so important. It's not just meeting the result, right? It's how you, how you brought others along, how you did it. Yeah. And, and when people have the habit of doing it the right way, much more often comes out the right way. And it also is a process you can be proud of. And that's often what firms really care about is high quality, both process and result. Because you know, if you get the right result for the wrong reason, you're asking for trouble next time out. You get the, you know, a questionable result, but you use the right process, then statistically you're going to get the right result most of the time. <laughs> and the firm is going to be very happy with the explanation that we followed the process, but whatever happened, happened. So I think. Values are process variables. It's truth and honesty. It's concern for victims of potential harm. Uh, you know, if you're working for a healthcare organization, the welfare of the patient is job one. You know, just getting the number of doctor visits in per day is one metric. But if you're doing it and it's compromising patient care and you're having adverse outcomes, then, you know, the mission of the group the mission of the organization is failing. And so being someone who's a person of conscience can bring that information to people and say, well, let's see if we can do better. You know, this metric is driving a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. So how can we provide outcomes that are consistent with our values? And that will also be the, the, the outcomes uh, that we seek. That's very powerful. I really love that to not just use your values and how you do it, but the, to incentivize based on those as well. Yeah, yeah, and I think you can have metrics for processes. I teach negotiation as well as a bunch of other things in this course, and I have a book on negotiation. And sometimes I'll advise, someone, someone um, has a certain personality. Let's say they're, they're conflict averse, they're sort of shy, or they're, or they're dominant, and they kind of you know, walk in and take over a conversation. I tell them, look at your own personality as a variable and then put a process rule in place to protect you from your own impulses. And the process rule might be something like, I'm gonna ask three questions before I talk about any kind of preferred outcome. And you just have a, a process there. You're gonna inquire, 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 then make a proposal. And when it comes to values, you know, you have to have process rules that we're going to check, double check, and triple check before we ship it out the door. And uh, those are legitimate, and they protect people from their own impulses to corners. 
So it feels like it's not just the the big things, but also just like these everyday interactions that these strategies can be used. So as you as you talk about it, I feel like it's similar to some of the things that we talk about on this podcast about boundaries around your values. Say if you have a micromanager boss or um, a peer that you're talk that you're working on that's not pulling their weight. Um, do you feel like the um, like your book also speaks to strategies on how to live those values and create those boundaries as well in those kind of just everyday situations too? Absolutely. I would say, in fact, that everyday situations are as important, maybe even more important than the big ones, because it's when you stand up for your own dignity, for your own, uh, for justice, you've done more than half the work. Don't you deserve some credit? the micromanager boss, or it's, it's not that different than a sexist boss. Uh, they're crossing a line that's making it hard for you to work effectively. And so how do you essentially negotiate that? Well, you have to first articulate in a non-threatening way. And a really, I talk about this in the book too, a really good way to engage a decision maker about this kind of issue is not to accuse them of anything, and not to come out with both barrels firing away with labels, accusations, demands, much more effective to say, I wonder if we could take a few minutes and just talk about the way we're working mm. so that we can both feel like we're getting the most out of our time and producing the most of whatever it is we're trying to do. It's my perception. Those are the magic words. It's my perception that we could do better. And it feels to me as if it looks like it seems as though, because when you come to a dialogue, speaking from your own point of view, as how you perceive things, instead of accusing them of some behavior or some mm -hmm. uh, motive, what happens in a discussion is the other person may disagree with you, they may say, well, that's not my perception, my perception is, but notice what's just happened. Instead of getting a defensive response, like, you know, you're always late for meetings. No, I'm not. You know, and now, now what are we going to do? Go back and like check time cards to see whether it's never or always or it's some. You say, uh, it's my perception that we could start meetings more promptly. The other person's going to say, well, I think our meetings seem to start on time. Uh, why do you think it, they, would, they don't? Now we're having a discussion. And somewhere in that, we can start saying, well, you know, yesterday the meeting was for 2.30 and um, I may be wrong, I may have missed something, but it seemed like you came in at quarter to three. Uh, you know, did we miss it? Did you send an email? Um, now the person is basically in the dialogue already. So now you're gonna have a conversation. And I think when you're doing boundary negotiations, you speak about your perceptions of the violations of the boundaries as you see them. And then that gives you a chance to negotiate perceptions. And at the end of the day, and I, I have a chapter on this, you try to create a pool of shared perceptions. Okay. Now, there's still lots of perceptions over here that they have that you don't have and that you have that they don't have. But you create a pool, just a pool of shared perceptions. And that's the area you can navigate in. And so for them, you find out Actually, their perception was that if they showed up 10 minutes late, they were on time. Why? Because every other group in the organization always starts 10 minutes late. And they're right about that. It's just that in your business unit, the culture is to start on time at 
when you say 230, you mean 230. So now you've got an opportunity to say, okay, now we see, I, I hear you, uh, and we have a different practice. I wonder if, if you can figure out how to differentiate the way our group works from how these other groups might work so that we can all just, you know, get, get on with the work and not have to worry about who's late or who's early or any of the rest of it. Uh, how can we work with you on that? Now, now you're making progress. So, uh, so yeah, the value is doing things right. It's not, it's not just doing the right thing. It's doing things right. Uh, and, and I think being a person of conscience, you bring these values to the front and they're never illegitimate to talk about. I think work processes and behaviors in groups are very definitely values. Uh, and as long as you speak from your perceptions, you can often get a very constructive dialogue going that will fix it. And nobody's evil, nobody's bad. People are well-intentioned, but they don't actually know what other people are thinking. They can't read their minds. That's right. Do you find that um, if you're living your values in these, you know, these everyday situations at work, then it, it might be easier to stand up for your values in those harder situations too? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's just like any habit. Mm -hmm. Virtue is a habit just like exercise is a habit. So if you're careful in the little moments, so you're attentive, you're aware, you're alert, then when the more consequential ones come along, first of all, you're, you've got confidence and you've practiced. By the time one of those comes along, it's not whether I'm gonna say something, it's how. Yeah. If you wait until this enormous problem comes along, then what's the rationalization that kicks in? So when we started with in the podcast, well, I don't have the authority. It's too big. I don't have the big picture. It's not my value. You know, it's not my my pay grade. You know, and so then you don't have the confidence to move forward, because by then it's you know it's way too big. I, I have I have another example. It was a back in the early two thousands. There was a very famous corporate disaster called WorldCom. They were a telecommunications company that ended up having a giant accounting fraud and they'd restate their books. They went bankrupt, 50 or 60,000 people thrown out of work. But it all started when the CFO and the controller went to two bookkeepers and said, we have a problem in the next quarter. We have to enter a couple of accounting entries that were not actually illegal entries. They were, they were on the gray area, but they were, you know, you could justify them under some theory or another, but they didn't want to put the entries in. So they went to these two bookkeepers and said, we just need you to put these entries in just this once uh, to make sure that the, we meet the street's expectations in the next quarter. And the bookkeepers were uncomfortable. They knew that, that this wasn't exactly the right thing to do, but they didn't have the big picture. They, they, they lived in a small town. They were fearful of losing their jobs, you know, all the different things that would naturally come up. And so they did it. And then the next quarter came along and the two bosses came and said, well, we need to do it again. And they said, well, you just said just this once. And I said, yeah, but the economy's not working as we expected. And, and now where are the bookkeepers? They've already started down the road of helping commit a fraud. Mm -hmm. So for them to blow the whistle now, they're blowing it on themselves. And so this, this accounting fraud went on and got bigger and bigger and bigger. And these two bookkeepers stuck with it as co-conspirators. They got deeper and deeper and deeper until it finally all blew up when the, a very courageous internal auditor uh, tracked it all down and, and brought it to the attention of the board of uh, directors and, and so on. 
but they, they went to jail. Now they're both good people. They went to church every Sunday. They, this little move that they'd made the first time someone told them to do something that they had doubts about, their consciences told them that it was wrong. They lost their chance by not calling in the little one out. Mm-hmm. And they are already into the big one and they were part of it. So the little ones are where the war is fought, in my view. Oh, I really like that, that context and that, that story. It puts it, uh, the frame around it, that it's the everyday that matters, right? Yeah. Um, one last question for you. How, how can this help by leading with your values? How are you building a career? How can that aid in your career advancement as the title says? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a bold title. It says the conscience code, lead with your values, advance your career. Most people think it's career or conscience. Mm-hmm. And my thesis is it's conscience that leads to a successful career. Mm-hmm. I think you have to ask, you have to think about the word career the right way, because your conscience may, if you're in a toxic organization with, uh, with a group of people who are felons, uh, if you blow the whistle on them, you're going to lose your job because you know, you're not going to be part of their corrupt uh, conspiracy. But I think you'll advance your career because by being on the right side of your values, leading with your values, you're going to stake out a kind of uh, person of conscience identity. You're going to gain confidence in it. People are going to look to you as a leader for values. And it may be at the worst case scenario that you have to leave an organization in order to advance your career. But, you know, Laura, I think you're a living proof that you can change organizations and advance your career. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I tell a quick story in the book that I I try to use to illustrate this. There's a lawyer in a law firm and his, he found out that his partners were padding their bills. So he found this out because he himself had billed certain time to a client. When he saw the bill going out, he saw that he'd worked eight hours for this client on a day he knew he'd work 20 minutes. And so he went to the billing partner and said, this is not right. We can't be over billing our clients for this. And the billing partner denied it and said, oh, I was just you know, making up for time elsewhere and blah, blah, blah. Uh, brought it to the governing committee of the group and said, this is not right. And they said, oh, everybody does it and you know, nobody cares. And, and so you know, at the end of the day, he had to quit. Uh, he just couldn't be part of an organization that was going to say that that was okay. He reported it to the Bar Association and to the legal regulators that handle you know, a law firm practice. And then he got a job at another law firm that didn't pay quite as much, at least at the start. But let's look at that. Did he advance his career by that move? I think he did. Yes. He's now working with people who share his values. He's feeling good about his job. He's getting to do stuff he loves to do with people he actually likes to work with and, and respects. And had he stayed there, he would have gradually gotten more depressed about what he was doing and more cynical about his whole professional life and ended up really hating himself for going along with it. So I think a lot of personal success, and that's in the authentic, you know, who do you want to be in this world? Yeah comes from self-respect in the work you do and the way you do it. So I think advance your career means that this is the pathway to an honest living. And with an honest living, your life will be filled with much more tranquility than it will be if you allow yourself 
to be corrupted by your environment. I love that so much. And it's the fulfillment that you have by living a life of your values. And think, just think of all the amazing work that that individual is doing and just his everyday life of fulfillment. I'm sure he's living all, all of his values by getting out of that environment. And, and when his children come to him and say, dad, someone's asking me to cheat in school. You know, what do you advise? And down path A, he was cheating at work. What's he going to do? Tell his child, oh, you can't cheat. And now he feels even worse about himself. Or he can say, well, son, let me tell you a story. I used to work for people that wanted me to cheat. And I tried to change them. They wouldn't change. And so I'm now working for people that don't cheat. And, you know, cheaters never win. Uh, and he's got, he's got a story to tell. And he can look at his kid in the eye. And uh, his child's going to respect him as a father. Hmm, I love that. Well, thank you so, so much. I'm really excited um, that this book is out in the world. And I just thank you so, so much for your time today and this really great conversation. Thank you, Laura. It's really a privilege to be here. I appreciate you asking me. I am still thinking about this conversation, being a person of conscience, values as a habit, Richard's book, The Conscience Code, Lead With Your Values, Advance Your Career is now available. Run to Amazon to get your copy now that has actionable tools to have these important conversations in your everyday work and life. The book is filled with even more real life examples of people living their values and standing up for what matters most to them. That wraps up our episode. Remember, your leadership belongs here. You belong in the C-suite. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss a show. Editing and support for this podcast is from SNE Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care. Mm -hmm.